0: your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn once again to uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24 uh, this morning, 1 Samuel 24, page 246 if you're using the Pew Bible. Well, the journalist Steve Lopez, in 2005, he was looking for something. He was looking for a story that was worth writing. But more importantly, he was looking for a life that was worth living and a way out of this massive depression that had hit him. He had been divorced. He had a series of unfortunate uh, things happen in his job. And uh, he was looking for a way out. Now, what he found was a man named Nathaniel Ayers. He wasn't looking for Nathaniel Ayers, but he found Nathaniel Ayers. He was a homeless man with a mental illness, schizophrenia. Uh, and when he found him, he found him underneath a Los Angeles overpass playing a two-string violin and playing the most beautiful music that Steve Lopez had ever heard. He wasn't looking for a prodigy, but he found one. You don't expect to find a gifted musician homeless on the streets of Los Angeles, and you don't expect to find kindness from a caveman. But in our story today, we see the kindness of a caveman. David has been suffering. He has been wandering in the wilderness. He's been running for his life, and we learn from this that the true king that God chooses will and indeed does suffer And in fact, David must suffer to gain the promises of God. And we can learn a lot about not just David, but we can learn a lot about our true king as well, Jesus Christ, from this. But we also learn a lot about the Christian life, that the Christian life is one of suffering. And we learn, most importantly, about the king, the true king, the king of kings, the one whom we should follow. Let me read this for us. I'll read the entire chapter and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding it. This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you today. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave And Saul went in to relieve himself. Some of your translations might say to cover his feet. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the "'Against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. "'See, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, "'for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe "'and did not kill you, you may know and see "'that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. "'I have not sinned against you. "'Though you hunt my life to take it, "'may the Lord judge between me and you. "'May the Lord avenge me against you. "'But my hand shall not be against you. "'As the proverb of the ancient says, "'Out of the wicked comes wickedness.' But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be a judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good Whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help and understanding. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and we thank you for showing us the character of the true king. I pray that all of us would have a heart that desires to follow him and him only. In Christ's name. So I want to look at this passage in three ways today. First of all, we see perfect timing, perfect timing. Secondly, we're going to see a powerful praying. And then thirdly, we're going to see a pointless repentance. So first of all, uh, perfect timing, perfect timing. Um, in this passage, Saul is exposed. He is both fi- figuratively and literally exposed. Um, children, lift, listen up. Listen um, up. One of the things that I remember whenever I was reading stories at your your ages, I remember reading these stories, and I remember thinking to myself, um, how come nobody in these stories ever go to the bathroom, right? No one ever goes to the bathroom in movies and in stories. They just don't do it. And this is why I love the Bible, because the Bible tells you that King Saul had to go to the bathroom, and what did he do? He went to the bathroom. That's what it says here. Uh, and let's see, verse 3. He, he came to the sheepfold, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Um, some I read from the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is often called the English Sanitized Version because they clean up the language. Literally, the Hebrew says that he covered his feet, which is a euphemism for saying... Um, He had to use the facilities, which is a euphemism for saying he had to go to the bathroom, and he did. And so he went into a cave to use the bathroom. I love the Bible for this. It tells us exactly what happens. He goes to this cave. He's there. He's exposed. And he doesn't know that David and 600 of his men are down further in the cave. And we sometimes get a a view of caves like there's these little bitty things. No, these caves are massive structures of caves. Uh, And so David goes in and he's able to go and hide in a deeper area, deeper part of the cave. And Saul probably sent men in to go and check out the cave before he went in. He sent his bodyguards in and they came out and reported that all was safe. And so David goes in thinking he's going to have some quiet time by himself. Lo and behold, there's David and his men down further in the cave, Look up, and they see it's Saul. This is perfect timing. You can't get any better timing than this. And so, uh, Ralph Davis says this in verse four: um, that the men, uh, the David's men, begin to sing the song. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. That the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Right, if we were a Baptist Church, everyone would have started singing along with me. But um, so they're looking at David saying. God made this day just for you here is your enemy go to him and kill him God has done this and so uh, David uh, sneaks up on Saul and probably what had happened is that Saul took out his outer took off his outer robe and laid it to the side and so David was able to stealthily sneak up and maybe as just a sign or something as proof of just how good and sneaky he was he cut off a corner of of Saul's robe, and then as soon as he did it, his heart struck him. His conscience got the better of him. And in verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. You see, this looked like to everyone else that Lord's timing was perfect. That you couldn't get any better than this. There was Saul, David's enemy, and all David has to do is go and kill him and then everything is over. It's all done. And David will not do it. We're actually told in verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words. Um, Again, the English sanitized version clears it or, or, or cleans it up for us. It doesn't say David persuaded his men. It says David tore up his men. He tore them up. He had to forcibly berate his men because they wanted to go and do the thing that David would not do. So David kept his men from going and attacking Saul. It would have been so easy. And to everyone looking, it says, this is exactly what the Lord wants of you. But David knows better. David says, you know, it may appear like the Lord wants this. But I know that the Lord doesn't want the easy thing for me. Uh, Here's what would have happened if David would have done this. And I think David knows this in his wisdom he knows. Um, David would have known that if he would have slaughtered Saul, then Saul's family, his sons and all of his grandsons could have risen up and said, David is a tyrant who shouldn't rule over Israel. And they would have been at a rally, everyone else around, and say, Look what kind of king David is. He sneaks up on a poor, unsuspecting man and he slaughters them. And David understands that that's the way that the rest of the world does it. But he says that's not the way that the king of God's people will operate. And so he doesn't do it. Here's the main point in this. David was offered the glory of the kingdom without the suffering of the kingdom. He was offered the glory of the kingdom without the suffering of the kingdom. He could have taken what he wanted and what was offered to him by force. But he didn't do it. He knew that the Lord had something better in store for him, and he could wait for the Lord to do it. And in what we read earlier, I want to connect it to what we read earlier at the very beginning of the worship service, where Jesus was being tempted by Satan. Satan came to to Jesus after he was 40 days without food and water in the wilderness. And he tempted Jesus, and he said uh, basically three types of things he offered to Jesus— And it's kind of weird that Satan would come to Jesus and offer these things and you kind of go, what in the world is going on here? Essentially, the things that that Satan offers to Jesus is the glory of the kingdom of God without the suffering of the cross. And I will invite you to go back and read Matthew 4 and go back and look at those things. And what Satan says is, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer and die. Satan says, I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world without suffering. The cross and without suffering, and Jesus at every turn says, No, you see, there is no glory without the cross. There is no glory without suffering. And it's good news for you and for me that Jesus refused to believe the lie of Satan. And it's good news here um, that David refused that as well. He refused the easy thing instead of waiting. For the Lord and what the Lord would want. If Jesus would have taken Satan uh, in his life, he would have believed it. What would have happened? Well, a lot of things would have happened. Um, but but Jesus, his mission was to come. You know why he came? He came to suffer. He came to go to the cross. Because without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, there is no um, There's no. Glory for Jesus Christ, there's no crown that's given to Him after. If He doesn't complete the mission of going to the cross, there's no way for you and I to receive forgiveness. There is no glory without suffering. And here's another thing there's no shortcut in the Christian life. There's no way for you and I to receive glory without suffering. First of all, the suffering of Jesus Christ. But secondly, as Christians, in this process of growing more and more and more, To become more like Christ. It is hard work. It is death. It's putting to death sin. And there's no shortcut to the hard work of sanctification. But even though it's hard work, it's good. It's good for us because as we work, as Christ lives in us and through us, to put to death sin by his grace, we become more and more like Christ. The more we suffer, the more glory there is. So there's the first thing we see. It looks like perfect timing, but it really isn't. And David refuses to do the easy thing, and that's good news. Secondly, in verses, um, it's actually verses 8 through 15, um, we see this powerful praying that happens. Um, and you think to yourself, praying? Is that what happens? I don't see any prayer here. Well, there actually is a very important prayer that happens in this uh, in this section. Uh, Saul finishes relieving himself. He goes out of the cave. David immediately goes out and he calls to Saul and he says, Saul, look up here. He, he actually, he bows down to him and says, you're still my king. Even though you're alive, you're still my king. And he bows down to him and he says, um, he, yeah, he pays homage to him. Um, and so David says, look, Saul, I could have killed you. I could have, I could have taken your life. And here's the proof of it. I took the corner of your road. He says, but I didn't do it. He says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, come after me because I don't, I don't want to take your life. I don't want to do these things. Um, in verse 13, he says an interesting proverb. He says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. And I just want to point out to you, this is a side note, um, but it's an important thing for you to grasp, an important thing for you to understand. Um, people are sinners, or people sin because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they're not uh, sinners because they, wait, okay. (laughs) That's where it gets tricky. Um, We tend to think that um, you are made wicked by what you do. But from of old, and what the scriptures have taught us, is that we are actually wicked because of who we are. That sin flows from a heart that is wicked. And David says, I don't have a wicked heart, and therefore I'm not going to do a wicked thing. If you do something that's wicked, it's because your heart is wicked. You need to deal with the heart. So David says that here. Um, and, And so he says all of those things. But in the midst of it, David says a prayer. He makes a prayer starting in verse 12. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. He's calling on God. He's praying to God to be a judge between David and Saul. David prays here in this instance for Yahweh's justice. Um, and justice makes us uncomfortable as modern, sophisticated people um, living in the 21st century. You know, we don't like to think of God as a God of justice. And we don't pray like this very often. We don't pray like King David prayed. And we don't pray actually the way that Jesus prayed. Jesus called on God to bring justice in the world, because oftentimes, even as evangelical Christians, we've bought into the lie that God is more of a God of love than He is a God of justice. Or we've bought into the lie that God isn't a God of justice, He's just a God of love. Let me suggest to you that there is no such thing as a God of love without also a God of justice. You cannot separate the justice of God from the love of God. Both of those things are true. And you and I need to get into the habit once again of praying for God to bring justice. David says this. He says, I as an individual do not have the right to take justice into my own hands. To take vengeance into my own hands. But he absolutely prays over and over. And you see it in the Psalms. They're called imprecatory Psalms. He prays imprecations on evil people. And he calls down the justice of God on the evil in the world. Let me ask you, is there any evil in the world today? Is there? Do you pray for God's justice? Do you pray for God to call down to call down justice, the justice of God on the evil people of the world? We need to. We need to pray imprecatory prayers. And I'll give you two examples of imprecatory prayers. One from a professor of mine and one that I prayed. I think I've shared both of these stories before with you. You're going to be shocked when I tell you the story, uh, my story. Um, I'm just warning you in advance. It's appropriate to pray in pregatory prayers. In seminary, in Hebrew, uh, my Hebrew professor, Miles Van Pelt, um, before we took a test, every time we took a test, he would say, Okay, let me pray for you. Lord, for those that have studied, bless their hard work. For those that have not, let them fail. And all of us would gasp. And the first time he did it, he said, I'm just praying exactly what King David prayed. If you're evil and did not study, you should fail this test. I'm just praying justice. Second one is this. Um, When we were going to adopt Alexander, we had a judge that will remain nameless that is an evil person. I do not mind saying she is an evil person. And Amy was talking to me right before we were going to the court date where we would find out some things. And she was saying, I'm just praying that the Lord would let this happen. I'm just praying that the Lord would let this happen. I pray that the, the Lord would give her a sense of, of something that's right and good here. I'm just praying that, that that this would all work out. And I said, I'm not praying that at all. I'm praying that the Lord would strike her dead today. I, I appreciate your eyes getting that wide. And Amy said, well, how can you do that? And I say, I'm not the one that's killing her. This is an evil woman, and she needs to be out of the way for the good, not just of our child, but for the good of other children in the city of Baton Rouge. Because of of her actions, children have died when she should have known better. It is an appropriate thing to pray for the justice of God. And David here prays and says, let the Lord judge between you and me. He says, my hand will not be against you, but let the Lord's hand be against you for the evil that you have. That's powerful praying. Now, it may very well could have been that it was the Lord's will to save Saul, to bring him to himself. But if that's not the Lord's will, then it certainly is the Lord's will to bring about judgment on Saul. And that's what he does. It's a powerful prayer. It's a powerful prayer. We need to pray that way. We need to pray for God's justice. It's an appropriate thing for us to do. Because it's also loving to the righteous in the world to pray for God's justice. The two things are not mutually exclusive. Third thing, pointless repentance in 16 through 22. Soon as David finished speaking, Saul says, oh, David, is that you, my son? All right, Saul is a snake. He's shown this over and over and over. He is a snake. And he says, oh, David, you know, my son, David. And he weeps. This is a man that has thrown spears at individuals because he doesn't like the things that they say. He, he's thrown spears at David. He's been pursuing him to kill him, and now he's weeping. Um, it brings up to mind, how can you tell genuine repentance? How can you tell when someone truly repents of their sin? Is this true repentance from Saul? Um, well, unfortunately, there's only really one way to show whether or not an individual is truly repentant or not, and that's time. Time shows what our heart is really like. And that's why when there's discipline cases in the church or uh, or even whenever you have an individual that you know and love who is sinning against you, uh, they might have lots of tears for a moment, but you know going forward that it's only going to take time to see if those tears of repentance are true. And in the church, what we have to do is we have to take time in discipline cases to see whether or not repentance is true. But Saul cries and he says all of these wonderful things. But it's really just pointless repentance. As we're going to see, this doesn't last very long, I and mean, Saul is going to pursue David again. But I want you to understand something. David continues to show kindness to Saul. He didn't kill him, first of all, when he could have. But when he goes out, he listens to Saul and he shows kindness to him. Uh, Saul cries out and he says, Look, I know you're going to be king one day, I know it's going to happen. But just promise me that when you're king, you're not going to take it out. You're not going to take my actions out on my children and grandchildren. You're going to show kindness to them. And David swears to his enemy, to the man that wants him dead, that he will not take vengeance even on his children. David will not cut off the other royal line, the ones who might feel like they have the right to the kingship. He will not do it. David is going to trust that God. That in God's kingdom, the king doesn't have to operate the way the other kings do. He's going to trust that Yahweh is going to provide and protect. Now, David did not think that Saul's repentance was true. Do you know how we knew that? We know that? The very last thing he does here. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. He did not trust Saul. If he trusted Saul, he would have gone home. He would have gone back to his house. He would have just waited for Saul to die, but he didn't do that. He and his men stayed in the stronghold. They went back and they stayed just ready for any attack that was going to come because they knew it was going to come. Um, but you get a picture of the true king here. You get a picture of the true king. Uh, David remains in hiding. He knows his heart, but he shows kindness. Um, you get a picture of the true king. What's the king like? He's patient. He's patient with the will of God. He's prayerful. He prays and he asks for God's help. And he prays for, he asks for God's justice and God's mercy. He's dependent upon God. Constantly dependent upon God for strength. Uh, for all the things that he needs to do, what he's going to do. He's humble. You saw that with David, he was so humble to say, even though God had anointed him to be king, Saul was still an anointed king. And he said, I don't have the right to take what God hasn't given me yet. And he's wise. The king, the true king, is patient, prayerful, dependent, humble, and wise. Now, in this passage, you are given a picture of two kings. One king who is violent and brutal. And it will pursue the innocent to death and another king who is patient and kind and gracious and dependent and prayerful. Which king are you going to follow? You have a choice. Are you going to follow the caveman king who shows kindness to sinners like you? See, Jesus was pursued his entire life. He, he couldn't live out in the open. He had to live in the wilderness at times. He says, you know, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I have to lay my head on a rock at night. I don't have a home. I don't have any place to be. And yet, even though he was welcomed nowhere, he welcomes you to himself. That's the kind of king King David is. And that's the picture that we get of what King Jesus is like. Which king will you follow? The king that gives and gives and gives and sacrifices for you or the king that demands everything of you so that you will sacrifice for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today. And I thank you for loving us in Christ and for giving us a wonderful picture in King David about the kind of king Jesus is for us. I pray that all of us would be found in him today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.